Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, uh, 12, chapter 12, verse 17, through the 18th verse of chapter 13, and reading from the English Standard Version. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, in blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast that deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead 
so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, he has the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kids, first of all, you are dismissed to worship kid style. You can head on out here. And while you are doing that, um, we have been preaching through the book of Revelation now for several months. And this is one of its more famous and stranger chapters. And so let's especially pray this morning as we dive into God's word. God and Father, I pray that you would be speaking to us through your word and making yourself known. Pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinful, as we sit under its authority, and be with me, though I am sinful, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I couldn't track down the details of it this week, but I remember years ago, like I think as a teenager, reading some like science fiction-y kind of short story, and the premise was that this guy, the main character, he woke up one morning, and he, um, and he found that all the people around him in the world— suddenly over their normal faces was superimposed this kind of other face. Sometimes it was this really like angelic, beautiful face. Sometimes it was this terrifying, monstrous face. And so you'd see like, you know, like this distinguished looking elderly gentleman in a suit, but he's got like this sucking leech face or something like that. It was a, it was a weird story. And I don't really remember what the story was, <laughs> ended up being about or what the plot was. But, but I remember that what, what you realized was that what he was seeing is sort of people's true faces, right? That was the premise of the story, that everyone kind of has this outward face that we see, and then this inward reality, and he had somehow woken up with the ability to see people for how they truly are. And I remember that idea in that story, because there was a part of me that was just like, I wish that I could do that, right? I wish that you could actually see behind the mask that people wear and know who they really are. And in a sense, that is one of the things that John has been doing throughout the book of Revelation, but especially in this chapter. That what this book is meant to do is to say, here's how we see the world, right? Here's the kind of ordinary outward appearances, but we're trying to give you this other picture to superimpose onto the world, to to see the reality of what's happening behind the scenes. And that is what's going on in these chapters. I used to, as a child, imagine these visions as sort of literal Godzilla monsters, right? That, you know, that the beast is rising up out of the ocean and stomping through cities um, like some monster movie. But these beasts are not, obviously, kaiju, giant Japanese monsters that wreck cities. These beasts are symbolic unmaskings of the power behind the world. And they're symbolic unmaskings of the power behind the world. And so what we're going to do this morning is just look at that, look at these two beasts, and ask what they're trying to unmask, what they're trying to communicate about the world. First, though, before we dive into that, let's just set the stage to make sure we have a sense of what's happening in this chapter. So in chapter 12, we had this image of this woman and this child who represents God's people and Jesus and this dragon who tries to destroy Jesus, but instead Jesus is raised and ascended to heaven. And we have this other picture alongside that of the victory of Jesus as there's this war in heaven and Satan's power is broken and he's cast down to earth. 
And we said that all of that is meant to be a story fundamentally about Jesus, that Jesus slays the dragon. And the reason we included the last verse of chapter 12 in our reading is because it then says the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is then where the first beast is about to rise. And it's important to have that in our heads because within that kind of story of the vision of Revelation 12, Satan is defeated by Jesus and cast down to earth. And then immediately this is what's starting to happen. And so what we're supposed to be thinking as we dive into this text is that this is describing not just some future reality. That's something that a lot of people tend to have as they picture this only as about the future. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But it's something that is speaking about our world as a whole. And we'll see that more as we then dive into the first beast. So let's discuss the first beast here. Um, and for each of these beasts, what I'm going to do, there's, there's a lot going on in, in these visions, and we can't talk about all the details, but I'm going to try to show two themes that seem to help us have a sense of what each beast is doing. And for this first beast, that first theme is that he seems to represent a false empire, a false kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. So first, here's the description of the beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So that is a weird description. And I... This week you like Google it and there are people I've tried to like draw this creature and it makes no sense, right? And the reason for that is because this description is representing a whole bunch of Old Testament symbolism. So first of all, we have the, the, the horns and head stuff and that's really what, that matches the dragon's description in 12. The dragon is Satan, so this beast in some sense looks like that. But then we have all these animal parts and those are drawn directly from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts and that vision is explained in Daniel. He's told it's about four kingdoms, four worldly empires. I'll put up the chart that shows from Daniel 7 what those four beasts were and what they seem to represent. There's a lion. It's Babylon, which is ruling while Daniel is writing. And then there is a bear. It's Medo-Persia. If you're into history, this is really exciting stuff. Otherwise, you're like, that makes no sense. But, um, and then Alexander the Great... The, Greece conquers, you know, the Persian Empire eventually, and then Rome eventually takes over that part of the world. And that seems to be what Daniel has. And you'll notice, I put that up just to say, that now when John pictures this beast in Revelation, it has like all of those beasts put together, right? You know, it, it has parts of all of those beasts. And so when we see that, there's two options. One option, which is the way some people read it, is that therefore this is about some other future empire that's sort of like all of those past empires, and there's two issues with that, though. One is the one we already noted, which is that within the kind of story of the last chapter in this chapter, this seems to be something that's happening immediately after Christ's ascension and the beast, and Satan being cast down to earth. And then two, as we move through the book of Revelation, John clearly in some sense sees this beast as meaning the Roman Empire. He, as time goes, all the descriptions here, if you were living in John's day, you would have been thinking about the Roman Empire, 
right? When it says he has blasphemous names, that would have made those first Christians think about the titles of Caesar, right? As Lord and God that they're supposed to to confess to him. When it makes war on the saints, I mean, that's literally happening in John's day, right? As Rome is persecuting the Christians. It has authority over many people, tribes, and tongues, just like Rome. And as the, cha- as the book goes on, it gets even more explicit. Like in chapter 17, he, it, he says, the seven heads of the beast are seven hills on which the woman sits. And this is another woman that we'll get to in chapter 17. But Rome is the city of seven hills, right? And he's saying that that's what the heads represent. So on some level, people reading Revelation would have been thinking about Rome. But the beast also seems to mean something more than Rome, right? It's got images of all four of those empires put together. And in Revelation 17, John will suggest that the beast represents both kings that are and kings that are yet to come. And so the best way, I think, to read this passage is that this beast represents worldly kingdoms, empires in general. It represents worldly political powers. When we talk about the kingdom of this world, as opposed to the kingdom of God, that includes a lot of stuff, but part of the kingdom of this world is the kingdoms of this world. There's a sense that God is coming in power to reign, and that the powers of this age um, are threatened by that, and are in some sense set up against God. Especially, the first piece represents worldly empires as they oppose Christianity. The assumption of this text is that the beast is making war with God's people. If you read on in verse 7, it says that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the beast is at war with the saints, this false empire. But before we apply that, we should also notice, you get it there, the people dwelling on earth are worshiping the beast, right, as well. And so it also seems to represent a sort of hope of false salvation. It is pictured, in fact, as a false reflection of Jesus. If you go back to verse 3, you have this stuff about how one of the beast's heads seems to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they follow the beast. And if you remember back to Revelation 5, we have this vision of the lamb in God's heavenly throne room. The lamb who had this, you know, mortal wound that seemed to have been slain, but was now resurrected and standing in power. The beast seems to be a sort of dark reflection of the lamb. Or verse 4, it says, They worshipped the dragon, Satan, for he'd given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And again, that echoes those songs of praise that we've read all through the book of Revelation, right? The saints in heaven cry, Who is like the Lord? Who, who is like him in power? And now the world is looking at the beast and offering it the same praises. And because of that, that beast becomes a false god. For example, in verse 6, it says that it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. This beast promises a false salvation as a sort of false god that blasphemes God and leads the nations astray. All right. So that's in some sense interpreting it, but we're like, okay, what does that mean for us? How is that supposed to shape our lives, right? On one level, the simple application is told in verse 10, where it says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith. Of the saints. So we're supposed to do two things. We're supposed to endure, which is to say we're supposed to continue in our commitment and following of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the beast, you know, persecutes the faith. We're supposed to have faith and trust that God is greater. 
But that said, we are like, okay, but what does that mean specifically for us? And especially if the first beast represents worldly political powers, what does that mean for us as Americans? And this can be a challenging discussion for some of us. So I'm going to be careful here, but I think it's something that we need to be mindful of thinking about. In Scripture, there are only two kingdoms. There's only two sides in this thing. And there is the kingdom of heaven, and then there is the kingdom of the dragon and the beast. And that kingdom, that second kingdom, includes in Scripture Babylon, empire, all these different images that communicate the idea of worldly political powers. And so that means that in some sense, every nation in Scripture is pictured as a part of the beast. Some less so, some more so, but everyone at root is a part of that, including our nation. And that is where a lot of us can feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Because we say, but wait, isn't America somehow exempt from that? You know, aren't we a Christian nation? Isn't, uh, aren't we a city on a hill? What about loving our country? And this is where we need to make some important distinctions. So let's talk through what that does and doesn't mean. All right? So it is absolutely true in one sense at its founding that America was intended to reflect some Christian values, right? The the idea of the inalienable rights of people, the idea of the dignity of, of every human being, that is something that stems from Christianity. But one of the clearest ways that was true was the way that those people understood all nations, including ours, as inherently evil. That's actually a part of our Christian heritage. And that's why the Constitution is so set on reigning in and restraining the power of of worldly powers. So uh, the idea is that, you know, what we have is still in some sense a part of the beast, so we want to muzzle it and shackle it and do our best to limit the harm that it can do. Um, And that's why we have, right, balances of power and a bill of rights. All of that sort of reflects that idea. And in that sense, it is true that we should be grateful for, so, for some ways that Christianity shaped our nation. But somewhere along the way, my concern is that we lose that idea when we talk about America, and instead buy into this other idea, that we're sort of a Christian nation in the sense that, like, in the kingdom of heaven is the United States, and then the kingdom of the world includes all these other countries. And that is not a biblical idea. And that mistake has left us with a long time, I think, with a wrong sense that we can sort of have it all that we can have all of the promises and all of the power of the American dream and the, you know, and all of those values. And we can also have God's kingdom and God's values and we can just put them all together and never have any conflict. We're not the only ones who have that wrong idea. I mean, Europe really in many ways had the same understanding. But I think that wrong idea is why the church in Europe and America is often so compromised. And Christianity looks so indistinguishable from the world. Let me try to give some concrete examples of ways that we get that confused. Take the idea of liberty. The idea that each human being should be free to determine their own destiny. So liberty as a political idea is a good idea. And I'm a fan of liberty. Um, But liberty is not actually a value of Christianity. Christianity says, I am a slave to my Lord Jesus Christ. It says that I should give up my rights in order to serve the people that are around me. Um, It says that God is sovereign and he owns every part of me and I exist to try to serve and glorify him in the world. Now, 
that does not mean that liberty is wrong politically. In fact, it makes sense in a political system, right, as a way to restrain the beast for us to embrace the idea of liberty. But what happens so often is that we as Christians start to therefore say, but that means then that that defines my life. And so Jesus comes and says, give everything you have for me, come and die for me, offer your whole self up to me. And we're like, but hold on, Jesus, like, I've got rights, right? <laughs> you know, like, 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 what about me? You know, that, and, my, and my freedom, <laughs> that, that, and that's a way that we can actually get confused. Or let me give another example. I know we're walking through some hard stuff this morning, so come talk to me this week and we can get coffee. But take capitalism, right? Again, capitalism as an economic system, I think is great. And I am a fan of capitalism as a way to structure the economy. But Christianity is not capitalistic in terms of its values. Christianity says that all of my possessions belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to me. And it says that I am supposed to give radically and give and give to those in need. And it says that I'm supposed to try to be content with what I own, right? And that, and it warns against materialism and greed. And again, None of that means that capitalism is wrong politically, right? Again, like in a, in a kind of fallen world with the realities of it, like it makes sense for us to support that in our political system. But again, the danger becomes that we think that, um, that like, like so many Christians, right? It's like, man, like Jesus says it, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But like, give it all to me, baby, right? <laughs> like I, I want to have all the stuff and all the the worldly possessions, and, and I've heard Christians even argue the sort of like, well, like, you know, if I can buy it, then of course it's fine for me to buy it. Like, there's no, like, moral sense in which I'm supposed to engage with the world. And all of that, again, reflects this idea that we've assumed that since we live in a place that is capitalistic, that our Christian values are the same. And that happens in lots of ways. I, as an American, have freedom of speech and thought. But I, as a Christian, am called to take every thought captive and speak only what is loving and useful for building up. I, as an American, um, am told to want prosperity and respect and a comfortable life, right? And I, as a Christian, am told, take up your cross and follow after me. And again, I know all of that is hard, and I know that we have a lot of questions. So let me just say two things about that. One is that I say all of that as someone just as in the middle of it as the rest of you guys. Like, it is, it is, I just recognize, we're not talking about some easy, like, change three things, and it's, you know, it's done. Like, our place, our culture has sunk down into our bones and shaped our assumptions about the world. And it is a lifelong process of saying, how is this keeping me from being like Jesus? And how do I need to grow to be more like Jesus? So don't hear this as, as that judgment. But also... I say that, I say all of that because a big part of growing as Christians is reflecting on the ways that we've been wrongly shaped by the world and reflecting on that together. Let me just try to give a concrete way to say that. Peter, in 1 Peter, puts it like this. He says, first he talks about us being set apart. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession— that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice how we are set apart. That's actually really strong language. He says we are a new, um, we have a new racial identity, right? We're a chosen race. We have a new religious identity. We're a royal priesthood. We have a new national identity. We are a holy nation. And we have a new personal identity. 
We are a people for God's own possession. He's saying that your identity as a Christian has fundamentally changed. And then because of that, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And by passions of the flesh, he doesn't just mean like sexual desire, which is the way we read it. But he means all worldly longings and passions. He says, abstain from that because they wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice in all of that the two words that define what he's describing. He says we are sojourners and exiles. A sojourner is someone traveling through a place that is not their home. An exile is someone who's forced to live in a place that is not their home. And in both of those cases, if you met a sojourner or an exile and you said, where is your home, right? Like, where are you from even? They would not tell you the place they are. They would say the place that that is truly their home, that they're from, which for us is meant to be the kingdom of heaven. So practically, what does it look like then to live like this? Well, first, let's say two things that it does not mean before we say three things that it means. First, it does not mean that we should not be hardworking, loyal citizens of our country. We should be hardworking, loyal citizens of our country. Jesus put me in America, and he says, love your neighbors, right? And my neighbors, you know, are, are here. Like, this is the place he's put me to be a Christian, and I'm supposed to serve the people around me and care for them and work for their good, and so I should work hard to make the place that I live a better place. And it also does not mean that we should not have an appropriate gratitude and even sense of patriotism for the good things about the place that we live. Um, there are great things about this country, uh, and it is right to be grateful for them and rejoice and give thanks to God for them. However, here is what it does mean. One, it means that we must not confuse America with our home. That is the kingdom of heaven, and we must not convince ourselves that it is our friend or our means of se- through which God is going to bring us salvation. When America is placed over against the kingdom of heaven, we always need to recognize that we are citizens of that place who are sojourning right now in this one. Two, it means that we must not let America's values dictate our values to us. There are things about our culture that are not Christian. And I don't just mean a few kind of moral issues, although those are certainly real, but I mean just like the materialism of the world you know, that we live in and the sense of just like, you know, I'm number one. I, you know, I mean, everything is about me. That deep-seated, um, that, the, the picture of the good life that we're sold, right? That it's like, you know, like, like what you should dream about is, you know, is this like McMansion and, you know, I mean, three cars and stuff. Like all of that is actually hostile to the values of the kingdom of heaven. And then three, we must not set our hope on America, which is actually in many ways good news. We are to work for good in the place that we are, and we should seek the good of this country, but even if everything falls apart, even if this place turns against the kingdom of heaven, our citizenship is in another country that is with God and is coming when Christ returns, and that's an enormous source of hope. So that's the first beast. That's challenging stuff. And we have a second beast to go. We'll move through him a little bit faster. But two themes about the second beast. First, the second beast seems to represent a sort of false prophet. A false prophet who serves the beast and the dragon. 
So the second beast serves the first by convincing people to worship it. Verse 12 says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound is healed. And then it also has this almost supernatural power it uses to draw people to worship the beast. Verse 13 says it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. That seems to be a callback to a few chapters ago with the two witnesses, where they, like Elijah, are able to call down fire and signs, and now this false prophet, this false beast, is doing the same thing to get people to worship the first beast. And the purpose of the second beast is to lead people into idolatry. Verse 14. By the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lives. In scripture, an idol is some created thing that we put in the place of God. And that's what the second beast does. He takes these things in this world and elevates them and calls people to worship them. And we are told explicitly, as we go on through the book of Revelation, that this second beast is a false prophet. In chapter 16 and 19, that's how he's described. And a false prophet is this well-known biblical category for someone who pretends to speak in the name of the Lord, but who instead leads people astray. And this beast represents that sort of force of false prophecy in the world. In particular in the Bible, false prophets are pictured as encouraging compromise with the surrounding world. And if you go back and read Revelation 2 and 3, where he warns against the Nicolaitans and other false prophets, that's their sin, that compromise with the world message. True prophets in Scripture call for repentance. False prophets encourage compromise. So a false prophet... And then he gives a false mark. And this is the part that I know that everyone's actually interested in, (laughs) particularly from this chapter, this mark of the beast. We're going to—let's take it step by step. So first, let's read verses 16 and 17. It says that the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast— or the number of its name. Now we're going to talk about what the actual mark is. It means in a minute. But two things to notice. First is that this is a mark of identity and ownership. The whole on your forehead, on your hand thing. That's what you would do with slaves. When people were owned by other people in the ancient world. That's how they were marked out. So this is saying that they're marked out as belonging to the beast. And then also notice the way the mark ends up tied with wealth and power. That there's actually this sort of like economic problem for those that don't have the mark. All right? Then verse 18, this calls for wisdom, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, so I don't know about you, actually I probably do know that you've had the same, but I remember like as a kid, all these stories about like microchips and barcode tattoos and stuff like that, and people speculating about that. That is almost certainly not what is going on with the mark of the beast. And I'll show you why. Read the next verse, the first verse of chapter 14. It says that I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. All right. So we have the mark of the beast, and in the very next verse, it's the mark of the Lamb. All right? And the, the thing is... None of us assume that that means that as Christians, we're supposed to get, like, Jesus tattooed on our foreheads, right? We all recognize that that mark of the Lamb is symbolic. It's saying we're publicly set apart as belonging to the Lamb. And just to be clear, teenagers, like, 
it does not mean get tattoo of Jesus on your forehead. And I don't want any parents to, to tell me. That. Anyway, so, so it's symbolic, right? And a mark of ownership. And the mark of the beast is the same. It's a way of saying these people are publicly marked out for the beast. And then the 666 thing. What is that about? All right? Um, and I'm going to tell you that I'm going to end up telling you that I'm not sure of the two options I give you. Um, but we'll talk it through because it's in the Bible and people are curious. It could mean basically two things. One, it could be a numerical rendering of some specific human name or word. In Hebrew and Greek, uh, words or letters would actually stand in for numbers. So like Aleph was one and Bet was two and things like that. And you could kind of take a name and turn them into numbers and, and do math. And so the most popular way of interpreting 666 is as standing for some kind of name. Bible scholars, the most popular view among them is that it actually stands for the Emperor Nero, who we've mentioned before in sermons. He would have been just before the book of Revelation was written. And he is the Roman emperor who really first started persecuting Christians. And if you write Caesar Nero in Greek and transliterate it into Hebrew, it's 666. And if you leave it in Greek, it's 616, which some of you might see there's a footnote in your Bible that there's a few manuscripts that have that instead. So that's the most popular thing. But the problem with that is that that whole numbers thing you can make it say a lot of different names. Let me just put a chart. Here, here's, a, here's a brief list. This is my, like, 15 minutes of searching on the internet list, right? In addition to Nero, it could be the Roman Emperor Domitian, or the Roman Emperor Vespasian, or all the emperors from C Julius Caesar through Vespasian. It could be the Nicolaitans, who got mentioned early in Revelation. The, some guys that Irenaeus says were heretics. It could be Mohammed. It could mean destruction generally. It could mean the Pope, because that Latin phrase— it, transliterates into it, or specifically Pope Leo X, or Martin Luther. I'll give you hints, those last couple who kind of popularized those interpretations, right? It could mean the Freemasons, or Hitler, or Ronald Wilson Reagan, because that's his middle name, and just look at how many letters there are, right? Or Yasser Arafat, who used to lead the Palestinian Authority, or President Obama, or Monster Energy Drinks, or our current president's son-in-law, who owns 666 Fifth Avenue in New York City, or, I mean, you can make it mean almost anyone— and that is, just to be clear, first of all, those, that's not what, <laughs> the point of that is to say that that means that that approach has issues, right? I'm not saying that monster energy drinks are actually the mark of the beast. Um, and that's what's challenging. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be Nero. That is probably, that is an interpretation that makes sense, but it means that there's kind of uncertainty. Or there's another way some people interpret it. In scripture, the number seven is pictured as perfection, and the number six, therefore, kind of stands for imperfection or incompleteness. And people will point out that in chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, you really see this sort of evil trinity. So you have the dragon, who is Satan, who kind of stands as this evil echo of the father. And then you have this first beast who sort of echoes the lamb with this, hand, with this head that appears to have been mortally wounded but was healed. And then you have this third beast that sort of calls praise to the other two beasts and testifies to them, sort of like the Holy Spirit. And so they would point out that if God is pictured as 777, right, which you could picture him as sort of, you know, this trinity of perfection— that 666 would sort of make sense as this way of picturing this evil trinity. And that has the advantage of being less prone to crazy internet theories than the numerology thing. It has the disadvantage of um, being harder to fit with the idea that it's the number of a man and the number of a name. But um, 
But the truth is, I don't know which of those is right, or maybe there's some other way to read it. I guess that means I'm not the man of wisdom. But while we want, well, I wanted to walk through that to maybe help it make sense for us, the thing to remember in all of that, one of the rules of biblical interpretation, which we talk about regularly, is that you focus on the clear parts, not on the unclear parts, right? And so while it is unclear to me what the number of the beast is about, um, what is clear about this passage? Well, one, it is that this mark is about getting people to be sort of publicly marked out as belonging to the beast. And secondly, that it has sort of economic consequences that Christians will suffer because they're instead marked out for the lamb. And so I think the way to understand it is to say that if that second beast is about sort of calling people to glorify and worship the powers of this world rather than the power of God, the mark is that reality that that Christians are called to live, in a sense, publicly distinct lives. They're meant to be sort of marked out in a different way by the Lamb than the world around them, which is marked out for the beast. So then that's how we apply it, by answering the question, what does it look like for us to be marked out for the Lamb? Let me go in a little bit of a rabbit trail. This is going to make sense in a minute. But go back to 1 Peter 2. Remember, Peter first says that we have this new identity in Christ— Um, He says it's like a new racial identity, new religious identity, new national identity, new personal identity. And then what we read in verse, starting in verse 11, is really a way from saying that because of that, we should live distinct lives in the world. So he says we're sojourners and exiles. He says that we abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he says, therefore, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning the nations around you, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers— They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying, live in this way that honors God and marks you out as distinct from the people around you. And as you do that, two things are going to happen. One, they're going to speak evil against you. (laughs) But two, they will also give glory to God on the day of his visitation. Just imagine this. What would the world be like if when people thought about Christians, right, they were thinking about people— who, they're like, that person is really, like, at heart all about Jesus. That is what their life centers on. That is the thing that they love more than anything else, right? If, what, what, how would we be perceived if, like, all of us even really, you know, lived in a way that the world looked at us and said, man, that person, I mean, like, the only way that makes sense is because of this Jesus thing that they've got. Like, I don't get it. If that happened, if that's how we were living, we would face real hardship on the one hand. Um, Real hardships in some ways that would be inflicted by the people around us, because Scripture's assumption is that if we don't share the world's priorities, that people will at times be upset by that and might call us misguided or overzealous. And we would also face real hardships because the world is set up in a way that that blesses sin, and that as we live for righteousness, it has real costs. Um, Following Jesus will require us to have a set of priorities that means that we won't have all the things that our neighbors around us have, right? Because we're living with the kind of generosity and selflessness that he embodies. So we would face real hardship. But just imagine the difference it would make if that was the way that Christians were perceived, if that was the way that we were perceived. I mean, in our world— the reason that Christianity is struggling is not because people are like, you know, like, like, I really like this Jesus thing is powerful and meaningful, but it's just not for me. 
the reason Christianity struggles in our world is because people are like, oh, it doesn't have anything to offer, right? <laughs> like, it, it, it doesn't tell me anything that I don't already have in my life. The second beast is a picture of the forces in our world that encourage us towards that attitude. Uh, the forces in our world that say, like, just mark yourself as a part of this thing. Don't, don't be distinct, right? Don't be marked out for the way. And that's why we need John to unmask it for us, because that process can happen so subtly, right? It can be so easy for us to be encouraged to just think like and live like the world around us. And so we need to be reminded that it is actually a satanic temptation. So we are called to live those distinct lives. But as we close, what I want to leave you with is not just that warning of compromise that the beast represents, but I want to just really speak again to the power of living that kind of distinct, lamb-marked, sojourners and exiles kind of life. Because just, just dream with me for a minute what, what your life might be like and what the world around you might feel like if you were really marked out in that way. And let me just, let me just try to give you a concrete example of what I mean. Um, and there are a few families here that I think are really exceptionally doing this, but I'm going to tell a story about a family back in Nebraska because those families here would be very angry at me if I used them as an example. But, um, but, but we were back in Nebraska, back home over Christmas, and thanks to Elizabeth's cancer, one of the ways that people back in Nebraska often express love, I've come to, uh, this is how you, I, I've learned you have to understand it, is they're like, why don't you just move back here, right? You know, I mean, and we're, which to be clear, we're not planning on doing. But, um, but I mean, I've come to realize, okay, this is a way of saying, oh, we love you and want to support you, right? Um, so that's a normal thing. But we were visiting this family who, who does just really in many ways embody this distinct life over several generations. Um, they, the, the, the grandparents in the family were missionaries, and they, they're, they're awesome. But anyway, we were there um, hanging out with them while we were back in Lincoln. And the, 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 the grandmother, I mean, her grandkids are like five, right? Like, she's my parents' age, but she was just like, why don't, what, she just says, what would happen if you, um, if you just didn't go back to Illinois and just stayed here? And I thought she was saying what all these other people had said. And so I responded with, what, you mean, um, you know, like stay in Lincoln? And she says, no, I mean our house. <laughs> and we're like, what? she's like, no, we'll just, just today, like move in and live here as long as you need rent free. And we'll just move in with our kids. And her kids were in the room and they had not discussed this, but they're just like, yeah, absolutely. Right. Of course you would. And here's the thing again. I'm here, right? We didn't take her up on the, off the offer. But I was like, that is so different than what those other people were offering and so much more like Jesus, right? And the thing is, I knew she was serious because they had done that before. Like, I remember when there was a guy that was struggling in our church with some stuff. And I mean, their response was literally like, hey, come be our roommate, <laughs> even though we're completely different, right? Just, you know, just come, you know, be welcome in our house. And, 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 and they lived that kind of set-apart life. And so many people had been changed by it. And all that is to say, just imagine what it can look like when we live like that. Not, not that you have to do that thing, right? We, we have a house here. We don't need to move into your house. But, um, but just, just imagine if we forget all the sort of just cultural ways we've been encouraged to compromise. And we're just said, what if all of this stuff was true, right? What if all the stuff in scripture about hospitality and generosity and sharing things with others and, and, and forgiveness and, and breaking bread together and dying to self and loving our enemies and living together in unity, if all of that stuff was true, right? And, and we really just said, what would our lives look like if we just tried to live like that? If we hadn't been convinced in so many ways that we should just compromise.
pull back that mask in a sense and imagine what Christianity could be like and the power it could have if that's true. And then let's just start to reflect together and discuss together some ways that we in our lives can seek to live those sort of set apart, marked out for the layout kind of lives. Let's pray. Jesus, you are at work among us and through us, and I pray that you would help us to embrace and follow that work, to not be deceived or led astray, to just seek to embody you in our neighborhoods and communities and with each other. Pray all of this in your great name, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain. Amen.